You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. We are continuing our sermon series that we started just a couple of weeks ago uh, for the summer called Sunday Classics. And we're taking sort of classic uh, Bible stories and just kind of looking at them again. And some of them um, you probably heard many times. Maybe some of them you've heard about but haven't really read about uh, or don't know much about. Today's story might be kind of like that. We started off in Genesis talking about uh, the fall of man uh, where Adam and Eve were in the garden. Last week we talked about Noah and the ark and the flood and all of the things that went on with that. And today we're going to talk about a story that I have to tell you, when I was a kid, growing up in church, I heard this story, but I didn't really understand it. And while I had great teachers and folks that were leading me, I'm not sure that they really taught me in a way that I really got it. And today we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel. And so we want to begin in Genesis chapter 9, kind of where we ended last week. And in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse number 1, God is speaking to Noah, and he says, So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God gives a command to Noah and to his three sons. He says, Be fruitful and multiply, have kids, and he says, Fill the earth in a way, a really cool thing uh, to say. I was thinking about this. Sometimes I just like to think about what, what would that have been like? As the waters recede, you're one of Noah's kids, and you know that nobody else is on the face of the earth. You could explore. You could go where you wanted. Uh, you, could, you could be like, this is my land. And then you could be like, no, this is my land. I'll claim that mountain. All I have to do is beat up my two brothers, and I've got Which I'm not advocating, but I'm just saying. But kind of scary too, right? Because there's only a few of you. And in Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, the, the two chapters are simply a listing of the genealogy of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. But there are two parentheses, two asides in these chapters, and we want to look at them this morning. So God says in Genesis 9, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then in Genesis chapter 10, In verse number eight, we see one of these parentheses. It says, Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And so, typically, it's just this guy begat this guy, begat this guy, begat this guy. This was the father, this was the son, this was the grandson, and on and on it went. But here, it stops and talks about this guy, Nimrod. And it says about him, he was a mighty hunter, and then it says something that 
might not make a lot of sense to us, but it says there was a saying among the people. If you were a great hunter, you were a hunter like Nimrod. Now, I don't talk about this a lot because I know people have different feelings about hunting. And if you don't like hunting, that's fine. I, I grew up, my, my father was a hunter, and he took me and my brothers hunting. And I, I really enjoy hunting. The thing I probably enjoy the most about it is there is this, like, generational camaraderie. I took my... my son and my daughter hunting, my older daughter hunting. I haven't convinced my youngest daughter yet than she wants to do. But I'll go and, I, and I'll still go with my uncle and, and I'll still go with my cousin and, and, we'll, and, and we'll share stories. They will show, share stories that happened before I was born. And, and every year we recount some of the same things that have happened at hunting camp. And Nimrod was this famous hunter. But he wasn't just a famous hunter. He was a leader. The scriptures go on in verse number 10, and it says, and the beginning of his kingdom, so he, he had a kingdom, was Babel. Eric, Akkad, and Cana in the land of Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Not only was Nimrod an exceptional hunter, but he had a kingdom. And it was a kingdom that was full of multiple cities. These cities would be in what is today, modern day, Iraq and Turkey. The first we'll learn here when we look at Genesis chapter 11 was Babel. Later, uh, Babylon, in the valley that, that they call Shinar. It's this big valley that runs sort of north and west from the Persian Gulf. And in, in modern day Iraq today. And then he went into what is modern day Turkey and founded these other cities. And so Nimrod was this guy who founded cities and built a kingdom. And so we come to our principal text this morning in Genesis chapter 11, verse number one. Genesis 10 finishes out and talks about the different uh, people that begat other people. And then we get to Genesis chapter 11. It says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what uh, they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad uh, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore his name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now when I heard this story in Sunday school or kids' church when I was a, a boy, this is what I heard. I heard that there was a group of people after Noah, and they wanted to build a tower that reached to the heavens. And God didn't like that, and so he came down, and he confused their language. They all spoke different languages, and they spread out across the earth. And I thought, I didn't even know God had a building code. What is the height limit? Later as a kid, I was taken uh, on, a, on a trip to, see, to visit my aunt in Illinois, and we went to the Sears Tower, which at the time was the tallest building in the world, and my parents had the audacity to say, we're gonna go to the top. It, come down speaking what, Chinese? I mean, I know how God judges these things. So there's a few things maybe I didn't fully get. I want us to look at this morning. It wasn't the height of the tower. Matter of fact, if you were going to build a tall tower, the plain of Shinar, not the place. It's about sea level. If you're going to build a tall tower, start on a big mountain, right? But the Bible gives us a couple of clues about it. It says that they were building a tower to the heavens. Most scholars will tell us that uh, the idea there was that probably on the top of this tower was some kind of an observatory for observing stars and different astrological things, not for the study of science, but rather it, this was most likely the establishment of the zodiac and, and the worship of, of the moon and the stars and these different things. This was a group of people who were not just building a tower, but they were establishing a religion. And God, seeing this, judged them. And so we want to take in this story and do what we've done throughout this series and learn a couple of lessons and then make some application for us. The first thing that I want us to see is this. They built with clay. Verse 3 of Genesis 11 says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. Some versions say that they had slime for mortar. They used some kind of a mixture of mud and they created mortar after they created these bricks. And they thought, we've got this figured out. We've found a way of construction that's going to be that's going to allow us to build big and it's going to allow us to build significant. But they were doing all of this under the leadership of Nimrod against the command of God who had said to spread out on the earth. They said we're going to make a big city. We're going to build something big and significant. And they were building with bricks. Now, brick isn't a bad way to go, right? I mean, uh, it, it's better than some other building materials. We learned that as kids, too. It beats straw, 
And what was the other one? Wood, right? Sticks, yeah. Wolves can't blow your, your house down, but God can still confuse your language. See, because man can build with bricks, God builds with stone. Maybe you've read in Revelation where the new Jerusalem, God builds a new heaven and a new Jerusalem, and it comes down and it talks about the foundation. Use precious stones, gemstones, and diamonds as foundation stones because God builds out of stone. Matter of fact, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As Peter wrote this, I'm sure he thought back, as recorded in Matthew, uh, that gospel there, he thought back to that moment when he had confessed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And Jesus, hearing the confession of Peter, said, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because God builds on stone, and he builds on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Mortar can fail and bricks can crumble, but the cornerstone of Jesus will, will never fail. It will last for eternity. And so while these men built with bricks, God builds with stone. They wanted to worship God their way. Verse four, it says, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They said, we don't want to be spread out, even though that's what God commanded them to do. They said, what we want to do is we want to build a great city. God said, fill the whole earth. They said, we want to build a great city. God said, you need to worship me a certain way. They said, let's make a tower to the heavens and we'll worship the way we want to worship. The same sin of Cain in Genesis where Cain offered up to God what was not an acceptable offering. And God judged that. Hebrews, and we're going to look at Hebrews uh, 11 here for several of these things. Hebrews 11 and verse one says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the words, worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, uh, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So Hebrews 11, this faith chapter, begins by saying, listen, faith is believing in things that we can't always see. And then the very first example of faith is Abel who offered a sacrifice 
just like God had commanded. He worshiped God in the way that God told and instructed he was to be worshiped. If we skip down to verse number six, it says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those Diligently seek him. I don't think we fully understand the consequences of this verse. Hebrews eleven six. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But we live in a world where we worship God the way in which we want to worship him. You know, I, I like this kind of, the, we say it. Well, I like this kind of worship music, but not that kind of worship music. I like this version of the Bible, but not that version. And I like a preacher who preaches this way, but not this way. Now it's quiet. It's all right. This is the only way I can preach. And it, you're like, I don't really like it. You're like, ah, I get it. But we, we just, we want to pick and choose what we want. But God is a rewarder of those who diligently. In a world, and, and surveys, and, and I read articles all of the time that talk about this, how people will claim the, the name of Jesus. They'll say that they're a Christian, but then they're like, but I really enjoy, you know, Buddhist meditation, or I respect these other sacred writings, or I'm sure that there's a lot of ways to get to God. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Matter of fact, Jesus put it this way, and I'll skip ahead, but I want to get there. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6, that's the last verse, sorry, I'm out of order. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Listen, if you go to the original Greek and you really break that down, you know what it means? Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. That's what it means. It means exactly what it says. Well, okay, but I really like, listen, God's a rewarder of those who seek him. God is a rewarder of those who worship him the way that God has instructed us to worship him. He, that's why he's God and we're not. But we like, to, we like to find a God that is palatable to us. But that's not the way it works because he's God. If it worked the opposite way, then we would be God and we are not. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship him. Not only that, Verse four says that they wanted to stay in a city. They wanted to make a tower that went to the heavens. And then they said, and we want to make for ourselves a great name. Man, I want people to remember us. I want us, I want to have a reputation. I want to be famous. Well, we are talking about Babel but not in a good way. And Nimrod's mentioned as a footnote 
But nobody's naming their kids after him. Hebrews 11, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 12. In the next chapter, in verse number one, the Lord had said, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's really interesting too, if you look at a map, Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Abraham was, is sort of to the south and the east of Babel. In that lower section, that same plain. And God commands him, he goes north and west and goes right through former Babel and up through that plain and then heads to the west to go to the land that God had promised for him. But God said, I will make a great nation. I will make your name great. And you know what? People still name their kids after Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah. Why? Because God made the name great. Not, we're gonna do something big. We've got a plan. They desired to make their name great. Hebrews 11, verse eight puts it this way. It says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Listen to what verse nine says. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These all, verse, skip down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See what happened? Nimrod went to this valley and he said, I'm gonna make a kingdom. I'm gonna make a city. And he got a group of people together and they believed that. They said, we're gonna make a city. We'll make, a, we'll make this tower. We'll worship the way we wanna worship. We'll make a great city. We'll become famous. We'll make a name for ourselves. And God said, I could take care of that. And then he went to Abraham. And the Bible says that Abraham was in the Chaldees and Abraham had an inheritance. The place where Abraham was going to get land, that was, the, that was the inheritance in those days. It would have been money and land. Where Abraham had an inheritance, God said, get up and go to a place that I'll show you. And Abraham lived his entire life in a tent. 
moving. Abraham never built a city. Abraham didn't see the kingdom, but he trusted God. And from that, God built a city and God built a kingdom and God established Abraham's name. And eternally, God will build a city. God will build a kingdom. And this is the hope that we're looking for. This is what is what we are looking for. This is where our citizenship is. This is where our ownership is. It is in God's eternal city and God's eternal kingdom. Amen. So I wanna make a couple of applications this morning as we, as we kind of wrap this up. Number one, our God is a big God. Jason read out of the Psalms this morning that God's love is high. It is mighty. It is above us. Isaiah says his thoughts are that way too. Isaiah 55, verses eight and nine. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Psalm 19, beginning in verse one, says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor language is not heard. That's interesting, isn't it? Even as God created different languages in all of those, they declare the glory of God through creation. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. I'm not a total nerd about this, but I really like space. <laughs> interesting that I have to preface that in a way, isn't it? But anyway, like every time SpaceX launches a rocket, I usually have it on my computer. I'm just like, oh, it's gonna launch, 10, nine, here we go, it's all exciting. And it goes up. And then it's even more exciting to me when they land it because that's like science fiction in my lifetime. And now we're sending rockets and rovers to other planets and even talking about sending men back to the moon and someday maybe humans to Mars. Do you ever then try to understand the expanse of not just our solar system but the galaxy in which we live? And I am not smart enough to understand this or comprehend light years and distances, but we see things that we have no hope of ever reaching. And in six days with a few words, God created that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The next time you read an article or see, an, uh, see a news story about the expanse of our solar system, the, the immenseness of our galaxy and the universe in which it is, think about the bigness of all Because sometimes if we're not careful, we think we're pretty big. We think we've got it going pretty good. I mean, hey, man, things are going good for me. I've got some success. Yeah, you know what God did in a week? He created more than you can see. 
but tell me what you did. Tell me how impressive that is. See, these guys are like, we know how to make brick. And we're going to build a tower. And God's like, and you're going to learn translation. So are my ways above your ways. We serve a big God. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. You know, it's interesting, and I will not take the time uh, this morning to look at it, but you see it most dramatically in Isaiah, but every time, Every time there's a vision, man gets a vision of God. Happened with Moses. It happened with the prophet Isaiah. It happened with with the apostle Paul. Every time man gets a vision of God, he realizes how insignificant he is. And God never gives man a full vision of himself. He, he, He declares, we couldn't handle it. We serve a big God. Not only that, but our efforts are pretty, pretty futile. They're pretty puny. Psalm 127, beginning in verse 1, says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Verse two there uh, says it's vain for you to work hard. It's vain for you to do anything because if God doesn't bless it, you will only be frustrated. You ever had those days? You ever had those days where you worked very hard, you were incredibly incredibly frustrated because even though you worked hard, you didn't accomplish anything? Some of you are like, yeah, we call it Monday. (laughs) Hopefully you don't call it Monday, Tuesday. But we labor in vain unless God blesses it. Our efforts are, are futile. They're tiny. Thinking about this a little bit, thinking about the message this morning and thinking about Father's Day. And I remember as a kid, my dad would take me, uh, he would often do side jobs and different construction things. And we always had a project we were doing for somebody and, and uh, my dad would always take us. And as a kid, it was great. And, and, and sometimes as a kid, you're like, man, I don't feel like this guy's really given me the responsibility that I need. I mean, because I'm looking at that power saw and I'm thinking, I could do that. And I'm like six, you know. I'm like, you pull the trigger, how hard is it? I mean, when dad's not around, I plug it in and chase it after with my brothers. I mean, I, I, I could do this. But then I had kids, and, and especially my, my son, he'd always want to be involved in whatever I was doing, and you realize that having him involved is great, and you want to spend time with them, but 
he's not really contributing to the, to the project. Not that you don't want them there, but they've got to grow before that happens, right? And man, I'm reminded over and over again how we can make plans and we can decide what we want to do and we can work, but if God doesn't bless that, it's not going to matter. And I've I've told this story and I've used this illustration before, but I, I was just thinking about it this week and I think it applies. Right out here, and there's a picture on the screen of this, this rock, but right out here outside our porch is, is a big rock. And on it is uh, quotes from Joshua chapter four. It says, in the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean? And then it says, it's another verse there that says, he did this so all nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful and so you might fear the Lord God forever. And then under it just says, God is faithful, September 21st, 2015. It's a a stone of commemoration. It's a stone to remind us what God did, but it doesn't say what God did. And it doesn't say what God did on purpose because we want to tell what God did. We don't want people to learn from reading the stone. We want people to learn from hearing the stories. And you realize that for about 10 years in the life of our church, of this church, we didn't meet in this building. We didn't meet in our auditorium. For a a time, we didn't even meet on this property. And then we met in in, in our oldest building. And then for over eight years, we met in the gym. And we set up church there every week while another church worshipped in this auditorium and in this building because our church couldn't afford the debt and the mortgage that we were under. And we prayed that God would let us come back in here. And we worked, we created plans. We came up with ideas. We implemented those plans. We invested money in those plans. We invested great effort, years and years. And at every corner and every time, it seemed like it just didn't happen. And as the pastor, I can tell you, a little frustrating. So much so, and I was talking with Mike Coy about it this week. We, our board met, and we began to lay out plans about how we would more permanently meet and worship in that other building. We literally had plans drawn up. But then God intervened. And in a matter of just a few, really two months, God worked things out so that we could move back to this auditorium. And in that, you know what God showed me? Your labor is in vain unless I bless it. It's not about your plans. It's about my plans. How often do we go to God in prayer and we lay out our calendar or our plans or our desires and we say, okay, God, this is what I want 
bless it. But God's not a genie in a bottle. What we need to do is say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I want to be a part of what you are blessing. I, I will use me, your plan. Use me for your will, because God is going to do what he's going to do. That's why he's God. And we're to follow him. Just a couple of verses as we close this morning and look at this last point. We need to follow what God's doing. We read Hebrews chapter 11. We read verses one through four, and we read verse six. It says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And in between is another story. And it's not a story that we're going to look at in this sermon series. But verse 5 talks about Enoch. We talked about Enoch a little bit when we went through our, our, our series in Jude. But it says, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken away, he had this testimony that he pleased God. And then comes verse six. Those who walk by faith, those who follow God must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What was Enoch's testimony? He pleased God. So one day, God just said, I enjoy hanging out with you, Enoch. Why don't we just go to my place? That's the best way to go. It's not the way most of us are going to go, but that's the best way to go. He pleased God. Jesus taught this. Think about when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. The Lord's Prayer, the model prayers recorded in several of the Gospels. The Bible says that the disciples came to Jesus and they said, hey, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. You need to teach us to pray. And in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, Jesus said this, In this matter, therefore, pray. And you know it. Our God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've read those words. Most of us have those words memorized. You might have even recited that prayer. But have you really made that a prayer from your heart? God, your will be done. See, we look around. I think the major difference between heaven and earth is this. Matthew says, Jesus said, in heaven, God's will is always done. That's why it's perfect. That's why there's no sin. And so we pray, God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's probably pretty easy for us to pray that when we're praying for the whole earth. But how about, God, let your will be done in my life the same way your will's always done in heaven? What if we started there? is that might mean that your will didn't get done, but God's will did get done. I mean, I want God's will done conceptually, but I also want it to really flow with my will, you know what I mean? 
But what if God's will and my will are different? Well, I'll clue you in, whether you pray that prayer or whether you submit to him or not, God is going to accomplish his will. And we can bow and we can fight against that, but we will only be frustrated because we labor in vain if God is, does not bless that. That's why Jesus would say in John chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we, we memorize and recite and go to that passage of Scripture that relates to salvation. Put that back up there for me, would you please? Thank you. Right? I mean, in the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father through me. Amen? Amen. I mean, we want to get behind that. You can't, you can't get to heaven through Buddha. You can't get to heaven through uh, meditation, through Allah, through any other thing. It's only through Jesus. It's not just true for salvation. It is true for salvation. But it's also true for our daily life. We've got to submit our will to the will of God. We've got to, we've got to ask Christ to bless our steps and to change our steps if they need to be changed. Listen, I have plans. I have, I, I have visions for our church and I visions for, for, for my family and, and for my future and, and things that I want God to do. But what if God says, I want you to do something different? Then how do you react? We need, to, we need to want God's will. And to me, the greatest story of the Tower of Babel is there was a group of people who said, we got a plan. We're going to worship this way. We're going to build this way. We're going to do this thing. And God said, I told you to scatter. And they scattered. We want to follow God's plan. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be submissive to him. Sometimes, oftentimes, that means taking steps that we don't understand. That's what it means to walk by faith. It means, it means even in the midst of difficulty and hurt, recognizing those things and saying, okay, God, I trust you. I trust the work that you're doing. I trust what your plan is, and I will follow it, even though I may not really like it sometimes. But let us learn from the people of Babel and let us strive not to be like them, but to be like Abraham, who not seeing, obeyed. And God established a name and a city for him. Our gracious God, Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. God, I thank you for your word. Lord, 
the story of Babel happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And yet, God, it still has great application to our lives today. Lord, there may be people here today that are, are facing decisions and choices. And, and God, uh, maybe you've made your will known or maybe you haven't, but uh, they're trying to exert their will, their ideas. God, help us to submit to what you have for us. God, give us wisdom and discernment to be able to see what you have for us. And God, help us to trust in your goodness, in your plan for what we're doing. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word and for your son today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.